friends welcome to crime castle um so i just wanted to quickly say again that so many of you guys are listening from all over the world and i think that's really cool it's amazing but also you guys <laughs> i was looking at because i could see like i said like locations of where people are listening from and i saw that there was multiple people that were listening from burbank which is like you know that's like my neighborhood so i'm just like freaked like i don't know I'm, that freaks me out am i crazy for that i don't know so like if you know me just don't tell me you listen <laughs> i'm like too insecure to hear any feedback so if you're in burbank listening to me and you know me um just like listen from afar <laughs> anyway um no it's just like you know it's just so close to home so it just feels very weird to me i don't know if that's strange but i thought i would share anyway uh so today i'm gonna be talking about mary bell so this case to me has always fascinated me like on the psychological level because mary bell was a child serial killer well yeah she's like she's just an anomaly on several levels and like first of all she's a female which is rare and then she's a child child so that's also really weird um there's just a lot of aspects to the story that are a little bit out of the norm and so i think it brings up those questions of is it nature is it nurture you know all of these things um that come into like psychology and everything like that and um so i just find her to be pretty fascinating i'm not sure if she's like i think different people have different opinions if she's technically a serial killer but i think she is and uh since i'm the expert in my own podcast <laughs> um i'm just gonna say that she is a serial killer i, I say it because of the way that she her, her demeanor and everything like that she seemed to have no remorse she seemed to have all these characteristics of basically what a serial killer is and i think if she hadn't been caught she would have kept going so that's why i think in my opinion she's a serial killer but anyway um let's get on to the case because uh, some people some of you might not know her so like let's get into basic facts right so mary bell she was born Mary Flora Bell uh, on May 26, 1957. She is English. So Mary's mother was named uh, Elizabeth Bell, but uh, for some reason she went by Betty. So I'm just going to call her Betty. Not some reason, like she just went by Betty. <laughs> um, so Betty was a like a local sex worker. And uh, it's also said that she was apparently like a dominatrix. And... How can I put this? I'm not gonna, I'm not, I think a lot of people at that time, you know, obviously they didn't even use the word sex worker. They used like the P word, you know, prostitute and stuff. And they really put her down for all of this. And I don't, I do have my opinions of Betty as a person, but you know, I think she did what she did. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. And I don't think that made her a bad person. However, the stigma that went along with all of that, especially in that time, I think contributed to this, um, like, environment that they lived in. Um, so, yeah. So, so, but I just want to be clear, like, if I talk about that, I'm not putting down what she did for a living. Because I don't think that that's wrong. Okay. Hopefully, I'm, that made sense. Um, 
so anyway so betty would often be gone because she was working and she would actually travel all the way to glasgow for you know work so she would leave her kids with their father if they were around and so you know she wasn't how can i put it she wasn't always like there she wasn't always watching them or taking care of them which again is fine sometimes you know hey she's working so she's busy so i'm not putting her down for that either but um the pattern i think that i see with betty is betty would continually put her kids in situations where bad things can happen i guess is i guess that's what i'm hinting at or what i'm leading to um not that it's a bad thing to leave if you have to go to work Okay, I'm sorry. I hope I'm making sense. Okay, uh, I'll stop with that. So anyway, so she would leave her kids often, and um, and she would you know she would go to work. So Mary was actually Betty's second child, and she was born when Betty was only 17. So here's another aspect of it, right? She was a teen mom. I'm sure she had no support. Like that's you know all of this is contributing to their household and everything like that. So um, it's unknown who Mary's biological father is, but um. It's believed that, she, and she believed that her father was William Bell, uh, who they call Billy, uh, and, and Mary believed that that was her father, but it is unknown, like, who exactly was her father, and I can only assume, you know, because she was so young, and, uh, you know, we don't, anyway, so, um, Billy was a violent alcoholic, and apparently a career criminal, and he had these crazy charges, you know, like, armed robbery and things like that, so she, he was pretty, um, violent according to the claims you know made so uh when mary was born like the day she was born allegedly um her mom betty was yelling at the nurses and she was so the nurses are trying to give her mary and this is what she says quote take that thing away from me so again this is another aspect of betty's life the environment it seems like her mom maybe resented her a lot or something she 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 was unwanted um and that's known it's clear she was unwanted and from the get-go you know and she was uh neglected as well which is what i was saying earlier right um so anyway uh so throughout mary's childhood like as she was growing up people would see that she was often injured uh like she had like physical marks of um like traumas that had happened to her some you know injuries and you know she would often suffer accidents quote-unquote when she was home alone with her mother so on one occasion circa 1960 betty dropped mary from a one-story window um another time betty gave mary some sleeping pills like a lot um one time betty so this one's pretty fucked up so one day betty sold mary to a mentally unstable woman so apparently this woman was unable to have children of her own and she wanted a, a child so you know apparently oh mary i mean betty sold her sold mary to this woman um and took the money but eventually the older sister mary's older sister's name is Catherine, and Catherine actually traveled on her own 
uh, across Newcastle all the way to get Mary back and to bring her back to the family home on White House Road. So, you know, that's, imagine that, I don't know. So during this time, for those of you maybe wondering like, how was this able to go on or whatever. Betty had actually had a lot of offers from family members to take custody of Mary. They were like, we'll take her. Like, you don't want her? Fine, we'll take her. But Betty just would refuse them all. She was like, nope, nope. Um, so I don't know. That, that, that's that's interesting on the mom's psychology, you know? Because uh, she clearly didn't want her. But at the same time, she was not willing to let her go. So it's it's kind of odd. And then it gets worse, so I do want to say trigger warning here, um, trigger warning for uh, child SA and things like that. So um, it is alleged that Betty would encourage her clients to sexually abuse Mary, and apparently she, remember I mentioned the dominatrix thing, which again, I'm not putting it down, I'm not saying this is normal in the community or anything like that, but but Betty would apparently like encourage the clients in these sadomasochistic sessions to be, uh, you know, abusing Mary basically. So, uh, obviously, all of this abuse and just this environment that Mary was living in is gonna have a consequence. It's going to have a. It's it's going to show right. So. Mary uh, started to show disturbing behavior at school, as well as at home. But of course, where other people could really see it was at school. Uh, so they said that she would have these sudden mood swings and um, get, you know, I don't want to say crazy, but get like, you know, unpredictable. And and um, it, it just, you know, she would just have these mood swings and then Apparently, she also suffered from chronic wetbedding, which, by the way, is a common sign that a child is being uh, sexually abused. So, um, not that every kid that bedwets, but I'm just saying, like, uh, it is a sign. If, if just maybe that might help anybody who doesn't know that. Um, so, apparently, like, at school and, you know, even, like, playing with other kids or whatever, she would fight other kids uh like violently like she would literally get into fights and apparently she would sometimes try to like she would attempt to suffocate her playmates and schoolmates uh on several occasions she tried to do this um on one occasion she actually attempted to block a girl's trachea with sand so it was what she did was pretty in and of itself sadistic right um <clears throat> not only violent but it seems cruel i guess and so because of this type of behavior that she had, other kids would mostly stay away from her. They didn't, you know, obviously there, there's some unpredictable kid who gets violent, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna stay away. So, um, she didn't really have any friends. However, Mary did hang out often with one girl. Uh, this girl was one of the only people that she had in her life, I guess, like, I don't know if they were best friends, but I kind of want to say they were best friends because, like, it seemed like they were together a lot. And one of the only people that really wanted to hang out with Mary. So I would think that they were best friends, but it's never categorized that way. But anyway, so Norma Joyce Bell. So uh, Norma was a neighbor and she lived next door. 
and she was 13 years old. At this point, Mary is 10. So Norma is a little bit older, next door neighbor, and obviously I did say Belle, so I do want to say that obviously both of, both of them are named Belle, last name, but they aren't related. It's ju they just so happen to have the same last name. So I just it could get confusing, Norma Belle, Mary Belle, but they're not related, just neighbors. Um, okay, so on Saturday... Uh, May 11th, 1968, there was a three-year-old little boy who was discovered wandering dazed and bleeding uh, in the vicinity of St. Margaret's Road in Scottswood. So this child later told the police that he was actually playing with Mary and, and Norma, um, and they were on top of this air raid shelter that wasn't used, it was like abandoned, but they were playing on top of it, and then apparently... He had been pushed seven feet from the roof to the ground. Um, you know, he just pushed straight off. And this uh, inflicted a crazy severe laceration on his head. He said that he was unsure of which, which of the two girls actually pushed him. So, <clears throat> I'm sorry, he wasn't able to say exactly who. So, um... That same evening of May 11th, um, the parents of three small girls contacted the police to complain that both Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their children as they played in a sandpit. Uh, so this is basically four attacks in one day, right? Um, so then, of course, that evening, both of the girls were interviewed for, you know, these incidents, I guess. Both of the girls denied that the air raid thing happened. They said that didn't happen. He just, um, th they said that he had just, like, probably fallen or something. They But they said, like, they weren't there when that happened, that they just simply discovered him. They were there after. And that when they got there, he was bleeding heavily from a, a, a head wound. And they knew that he had fallen, but that they didn't see it happen or anything like that. They just happened upon the scene. This is their story. And then um, they were questioned about the attempted strangulation of the three other girls. And Mary straight up said, I don't know anything about that. But Norma admitted that Mary had actually tried to, quote, throttle each of the girls, stating that um, Mary went to one of the girls and said, quote, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands around the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat, and she attempt and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up, and Mary did the same thing to her. Unquote. So, um, the police went on to authorize the proper authorities. Uh, I think it's like a small town, so I'm not sure how all that worked. But they they contacted like. I guess like detectives um but because the girls were so young they were only given a warning like they basically didn't suffer any repercussions for any of this they were just given a warning and then let go and you know I just want to say like obviously this is pretty disturbing behavior from a child so you can't just let that off as a warning like if it was maybe one incident maybe but she strangled three girls and pushed one boy off the off not a cliff but you know and um so I just want to say like 
when people like her, and obviously they didn't know how she was, but when people like Mary do something so um, taboo, I guess, and they don't suffer any repercussions, this is a, a this is what causes them to it emboldens them. They feel invincible. They feel like they can get away with it. Um, so, you know, just that's kind of, again, part of this psychology, right? So on May 25th, 1968, the day before Mary's 11th birthday, uh, Mary strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom of a derelict house located at 85, 85 St. Margaret's Road. So three young kids found um, Martin's body at about 3.30 p.m. He was lying on his back with his arms stretched above his head. Uh, aside from specks of blood and foam around his mouth, there was no si signs of violence on his body anywhere. There was nothing visibly violent at the scene. So um, John Hall was a local workman. And I'm not, I'm unclear, like, if he was just walking by or he had some business in the house. I'm not sure. But he arrived at the scene. Um, I don't know if the kids, you know, called him over. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so he came in and he started to perform CPR right away. So while he was doing that, you know, trying to give CPR to the boy, um, he, he noticed that two little girls appeared at the doorway and it was mary and norma so you know he shooed them away and they left but they went straight to martin's aunt's house and they told her that you know he had had an accident and they said they weren't sure exactly who it was but that it was um like a boy in her family basically and they said that they couldn't tell they could they said they couldn't see his face like they couldn't tell who he was because he was so full of blood um and this is what they went to go tell the aunt both of them so unfortunately the cpr did not work and martin died so the next day dr bernard knight conducted a post mortem exam and um so upon like you know investigating the body and everything he said that he wasn't able to find any signs of violence um but he was able to rule out poisoning through uh ingesting tablets which uh apparently that was their theory that perhaps he had ingested somebody had poisoned him and he ingested some tablets um but they were able to uh, rule that out however they he was not able to determine an official cause of death uh, so for this murder, it's believed that it was Mary who acted alone. Um, sorry, I'm trying not to move my papers so it doesn't sound terrible. Um, okay, so so now it's May 26th, which is uh, Mary's birthday. She's turning 11 here. And um, on this day, she and Norma broke into a nursery in Woodland Crescent. And the way that they entered was by peeling off tiles off the slate roof, which is interesting. So they went in there and they vandalized um, the whole nursery. They tore books, upturned um, deals and smeared ink and poster paints. And, um, you know, they just... 
you know, anything that they could destroy, I guess they did. Um, and then they escaped and they left, right? So the next day, the staff discovered their crime, basically. So they called the police and the police came and then um, throughout the scene, they found four separate notes that claimed responsibility for Martin Brown's murder. So one of the, the notes said, quote, I wrote so that I may come back. Uh, and I just want to say a lot of these are written wrong. There's like certain things that are um, like uppercase and there's like grammatical errors. So <clears throat> like, for example, when she said or when it, the note said, I murder so the S-O is caps. Uh, another note said capital W-E. So we in capitalized did not murder Martin. Uh, they spell Martin M-R-M-A-R-T-A-I-N. Uh, which is not his name, Brown, and then it says, fuck off, together, fuck off, uh, no, actually not even off, it's of, so it, F-U-C-K-O-F, fuck off, you bastard, end quote, a uh, third note wrote, fuck off, we murd, M-U-R-D-E, period, watch out, Fanny, and I don't want to say this word, it is, it's literally what the note said, though, so I'm, it's, Watch out, Fanny, and F-A-G-G-O-T. I don't want to say the word. That's what the note said. The last note wrote... Oh, by the way, fuck off, murd. It was F-U-C-H, not even F-U-C-K. So I, I just want to say this because it's like clearly children who don't know how to... They don't know how to spell the words. <clears throat> the last note said, quote, you are mice, and then capital Y, just the letter Y. You are mice, why? Be curse, B U C U R S E. We murdered Martin, again. Go, G O, capital G, Brown. You B E T E, capital B. So you, I think they wanted to say better, but it's just beat, bet, beat. Uh, look out there, all caps there. Our murders about by, capital B. Fanny, capital F, and Ald, A-U-L-D, again the F word, F-A-G-G-O-T, capital F, you screws, capital S. So you are mice, why be cursed, we murdered Martin, go brown, you bet, look out there, our murders about by Fanny and Ald, F, you screws, the F word. Um, so clearly, like, we don't even know what the fuck that means. Uh, so anyway, so the police basically just dismissed the notes. Again, the police, I'm sorry, the police are being kind of stupid. But they dismissed the notes and they just thought this is some kind of tasteless, childish prank, whatever. They didn't take it serious. Oh, here we go with the freaking dogs. So then on May 29th, uh, shortly before uh, the funeral of Martin Brown, the girls, okay, this is fucked up. So the girls each called Martin's mother, like, separately to ask. Okay, now I gotta pause. Sorry. Alright, sorry. These dogs get very crazy. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so from there, where was I? I lost my place. So they just put it off as a childish prank, blah, blah, blah. So then the girls call the mother, right? So they call the mother, and they want the, they're like, can we see Martin? Can we see Martin, please? So... The, the, um, the mom's name is June, June Brown. So June is like, uh, oh no, like you can't see him because, you know, he's no longer alive. And this is what Mary replied. Quote, 
Oh, I know he's dead. I want to see him in his coffin. So, clearly no remorse, clearly some kind of weird fascination, like, sh like she wanted to see her work or something, you know? So, let's move on a little bit. Uh, on July 31st, 1968, there was a three-year-old. His name was Brian Howe, and he was last seen by his parents in the street outside his house playing with one of his siblings and the family dog and Mary Bell and Norma Bell. So Brian did not return home that afternoon. So remember, this is like the 60s. You would play outside, like in the yard, and, you know, your parents weren't there watching you like a hawk the whole time. So, um... The mom, you know, he let her, he let Brian play. She, I'm sorry, she let Brian play, whatever, right? So he was supposed to come home in the afternoon and he never did. So his family got concerned and he and actually neighbors started looking for him right away. Uh, so by 11.10 p.m., the search party or a search party discovered his body uh, between these two large concrete blocks upon it says upon the tin Lizzie tin Lizzie So I was like, what is a tin Lizzie? So a tin Lizzie is apparently a cheap old or run-down automobile It says it was originally used as a nickname for early Ford cars, especially the model T. So I guess um <clears throat> It was like some kind of like run-down car uh, This tin Lizzie it comes up a few times so anyway the they called the police and the first policeman that came at the scene said that there had been a quote deliberate but feeble attempt to hide the body so um the apparently like the body was covered in clumps of grass and weeds and i guess that was their way of covering it up i just laughed because uh it's so clearly childish if you know what i mean it's kind of like when kids cover their eyes when they're playing hide and seek and they think that you can't see them i feel like that's kind of this sort of um mentality um so cyanosis was evident upon the child's lips and there were several bruises and scratches where you know they were he had a lot uh, bruises and scratches upon his neck so you know clearly evidence of like some kind of strangulation there was also a pair of broken scissors that lay close to his feet. This is kind of important. Um, also, the co the coroner basically concluded that Brian died of strangulation. And he had been dead for up to seven and a half hours before his body was discovered. Sorry. Um, I, don't, I have allergies. So I do, again, want to put trigger warning here for child abuse. Um... <clears throat> Basically, it was concluded that whoever had murdered Brian had squeezed his nostrils closed with one hand as he or she gripped his throat with the other. Hold on one second. I'm trying to not make too much noise with this paper. I, you guys, I have 11 pages of notes. I'm like, this took me like a week to write. And I'm like, why is this taking me so long? It's 11 pages. So anyway, I'm sorry. I feel like I'm taking forever. So there was these numerous puncture wounds that were all around the kid's legs. So um, again, just like, I'm sorry, but you know, abuse. Section of his, sections of his hair had been cut off from his head. Again, tr uh, trigger warning, trigger warning. Um, his genitals had been partially mutilated. 
There was also an attempt to carve the letter M into his stomach, but it wasn't, they weren't able to really do a good job of that. Uh, so there was a relatively small amount of force used to murder the child, uh, according to the coroner. And so this led him to believe that the, the murderer was probably another child. Um, they found numerous gray and maroon fibers on his body um, and his clothes and his shoes. And so um, they determined that the source of these gray and maroon fibers were not from his clothing and nothing from the Howe household. Um, so they believed that it was likely transferred to the child by whoever murdered him. So um, when this, when Brian's murder was discovered and came out, this sparked a, a huge, large, large scale manhunt. Man, oh my God, I can't talk. Manhunt for these, uh, for the murderer. So there were over 100 detectives from across Northum, Northumberland, something like that. Sorry. Um, they were all assigned to investigate to, to this investigation, and then there was more than 1,200 children that had been questioned with regard to their whereabouts on August 2nd. Um, so slowly, you know, the, talking to everybody and witnesses started to tell the investigators that Mary and Norma were seen playing with Brian shortly before they believed his time with death was. So when in Norma's first interview, she seemed excitable. Um, and apparently Mary's like demeanor was more observant more it said taciturn in the article i used but it's like you know she was a little bit i think she was a little bit more calculated uh so so <clears throat> both of the girls were evasive and apparently like kind of contradicted their initial statements they kind of said different things but either way they both did admit that they did play with Brian on the day that he died, but they they said like we didn't see him after lunchtime. Um basically trying to say that, you know, I don't know what happened to him. I wasn't there, right? So the next day Mary was questioned again and she said that she did remember seeing Brian playing with a local eight year old boy around that afternoon on July thirty first. I mean like apparent she apparently a witness that this local boy was hitting Brian and she said that he had grass and weeds all over his clothes at the time she saw him and she's like it looked like he had been rolling around in a field like and got you know um grass all over him and then she said that he had a, a small pair of scissors and so this is what Mary's quote is quote I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with scissors but there was something wrong with them one leg was broken or bent. Okay, remember I said the scissors were important. So this was self-incriminating because... Uh, so... Uh, sorry, I'm like, I want to say three things at the same time. This whole thing about the broken scissors was something that only police knew. So Detective Chief Inspector James Dobson... He believed Mary must have been the killer. She had to be the killer because, of course, like nobody else knew about these broken scissors that were found on the crime scene, and, and she described them perfectly. Um, okay, so uh, 
the boy that she had, um, what's the word, implicated or whatever, um, he, he actually had an alibi. <laughs> These are kids, it just feels weird to talk about them this way, but he was discovered to have been at Newcastle International, International Airport on the afternoon of July 31st with numerous witnesses able to corroborate his parents' claim. So, no, he was not there playing with Ryan. That was a lie. So, on August 4th, the parents of Norma Bell contacted the police. And they said that Norma wanted to talk to them and tell them what she knew about the death of Brian. So the detective chief, chief inspector, DCI, Dobson, he went to their home to, you know, listen. And he, he even said, like, are you sure you, you know you want to say this, whatever. They were like, yeah. Okay, so then Norma told him that Mary had taken her to that spot uh, on the Tin Lizzie. And she saw Brian's body. Uh, so she kind of apparently came upon the scene. Not came upon, but Mary took her to the scene. And she said that Mary demonstrated how she had strangled Brian. Um, this is all claims that Norma made, right? Uh, she she also explained, like... Okay, she said that Mary told her that she enjoyed strangling him. And that... She basically, like, said that she was enjoying all of this. And how she inflicted those marks on his stomach with a razor blade. And... Um, it's actually interesting to hear because they didn't find a razor blade, but it came out that the, the, the razor blade had actually been hidden. So this was completely new information. Again, showing that these two girls were the ones because they knew things that even the detectives didn't know. So um, there's no way, you know, that they weren't somehow involved, basically. Um, and she also mentioned the broken scissors. So again, it's like nobody knew about that except for the police. So it had to be them, right? So Norma decided or they asked her to take her to the crime scene. And they were like, can you show us where she hid this razor blade? And so she did. And then she also drew a picture of Brian's body. And she drew like where the wounds were on his abdomen and everything. And basically everything that she drew was a match to... Um, the wounds that were described by the coroner so obviously she was there she did see uh, on august 5th the investigators went back to mary's house and they were like hey like there's a lot of discrepancies in your statement you know what what's going on here and this is her response quote you're trying to brainwash me i, I will get a solicitor to get me out of this um, so at that point she's not giving them anything right so they go back to norma and they have her give a full um, like statement and official and whatever so at this point Norma has officially admitted that yeah she was there present at the murder um, and she said that the, the three of them were alone at the Tin Lizzie and Mary quote seemed to go all funny um, and that she would push the child into the grass and attempted to strangle him before stating to her quote my hands are getting thick take over Um she had then run from the scene Norma did um leaving mary alone with brian so they did do a forensic forensic exams on the girls clothes and they found the the some gray fibers remember they had found those on brian's body they found them on mary's wool dress and they were able to match those fibers also norma's skirt was a precise uh match to some fibers that were found on brian's shoes um so then those gray fibers also matched uh, the ones I already said that, that they match with Brian. So basically it seemed like Brian, um, I'm sorry, Mary had indeed killed both boys. Um, 
Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. The gray fibers matched uh, Martin. So we're talking about Brian. I'm sorry, I confused myself. Yeah. Um, those gray fibers from her wool dress also matched uh, fibers on Martin's body. So they were able to conclude that Mary had indeed killed both of these boys. So Brian was buried in a local cemetery on August 7th, 1968. Um, there was a ceremony attended by over 200 people. And uh, so DCI Dobson was, his plan was to marry, ugh, his plan was to arrest Mary and Norma later on this day of the, of the funeral. Um, but, um, you know, first there was a funeral and apparently like he had attended. And then he noticed that Mary was standing outside the house of the child um and as they're bringing the child's coffin out um of the house to like start the funeral procession um this is what dobson says that mary was doing at this moment right quote she stood there laughing laughing and rubbing her hands i thought my god i've got to bring her in she'll do another one so I just want you to, like, think of that imagery, right? There's a little 10-year-old girl running her, rubbing her hands together and laughing while this funeral starts, right, of this boy who was abused, tortured, and murdered, presumably by her. Um, and she's just there, like, rubbing her hands and laughing like an evil villain. Like, so, just imagine that scene, you know? Um... All right, so both of these girls were formally charged with murder of Brown, of Brian, um, at 8 p.m. on that same evening. And this was Mary's reply. That's all right by me. Quote. Um, when they arrested Norma, she burst into tears. And she all she said was, quote, I never. I'll pay you back for this. So in an unshocking turn of events mary prepared a written statement in which she admitted yeah i was there when brian was murdered but would you believe it the murderer was actually norma um she said that she and norma were the ones that broke into the woodland crescent uh, nursery uh, the day after martin brown's murder uh and that uh they were the ones that um you know vandalized the property and that they were the ones that wrote those four notes so after the girls got arrested both of them had psychological evalu evaluations done so the results of these tests reveal that norma was intellectually delayed and a submissive character who easily displayed emotion emotion um which kind of makes sense like you know as soon as she's arrested she's crying um but i I'm not sure, I mean, you know, this was the late 60s, like, psychology wasn't where it is now, so it seems to make sense, you know, in this context, but I would just say, you know, think about the times um, when it comes to their psychological profile. Just saying, just saying, just to think about that. Um, however, she said Mary was, like, the opposite, that Mary was this bright yet cunning character um, she also said that she was prone to mood swings, uh, Mary was, and she said that Mary would sometimes talk, like, willingly, willingly, and all of a sudden she'd be, like, 
should rapidly become sullen and then introspective and then she was defensive in nature so i mean i'm not a psychologist or anything but maybe she suffered from like a bipolar disorder or some, some type of disorder that like that because um lots of people said she had these mood, mood swings and it seems like they were pretty extreme so there was four psychiatrists who examined mary and they all concluded that she was not suffering from a mental disorder um that she was just uh she suffered from a psychopathic personality disorder, which is a mental disorder. But, you know, again, late 60s. So in his official report, um, this was compiled for the director of the public prosecutions. So Dr. David Westbury concluded, quote, Mary's social techniques are primitive and take the form of automatic denial, in ingratiation, manipulation, complaining, bullying, flight, or violence. The trial of Mary Bell and Norma Bell for the murders of Martin Brown and Brian Howe began at Newcastle Aziz on December 5th, 1968. So both girls were tried before Justice Ralph Cusack and both pleaded not guilty to the charges. So Mary was defended by Mr. Harvey Robson and Norma was rep by R.P. Smith. So Robson and Smith. Mary is Robson, Norma is Smith. So uh, against protests from both defense counsels on the first day of trial Cusack uh waived the defendant's right to anonymity on account of their age so you know since they're minors technically they're supposed to be given anonymity but the judge was like no um so because of this the media was allowed to publicize the names the ages photographs of both of the girls um so it became like a media spectacle I guess um, so then these two girls, uh, they each sat, sat along plainclothed female p police officers in the center of the court. Uh, they were behind their legal representatives, but they were within like an arm's reach of their own families during the duration of the trial. So, um, this whole thing about keeping the, it, it comes up again later, the anonymity of it all. I, it, it brings up for me like i don't want to get into it now but i think i will do a discussion about it later because for, forget about the anonymity of these murderers don't do you think that it's wrong when somebody's murdered and for example i keep saying martin and brian and we know their names we know their parents names we we have all this information do you guys think that that is wrong or do you think that it's necessary? Or do you think it doesn't matter? Like, what are your thoughts? And I, I just think it's sort of it's sort of disrespectful, if you think about it, that, that these um, victims, and I, I don't know, maybe even their age, maybe it, it could be an age thing, I don't know. Like, maybe minors who are murdered, they shouldn't have their name out there. I don't, I just don't think that it's fair in a way for them to be put out into the public as a victim of murder or something like maybe i'm wrong i'm not sure it's not a full thought but i was just thinking about that because um you know they're like trying to protect the the identity of the murderer but what about the victim i can only imagine if somebody that i loved was murdered and then their name was all over the news everybody knew what happened and it's like you have this this scarlet letter on your you know shirt 
for the rest of your life like oh this is a person who was murdered I don't know I just I don't feel like because that doesn't define the person you know so I, I'm I'm so I don't know I was just thinking about that anyway I will continue on so Rudolph Lyons <clears throat> he was the prosecutor he he opened the case so um his his opening statement lasted six hours I always find that interesting like what are you saying for six hours and I can only imagine being the juror I think I'd fall asleep like that's way too much how are you supposed to remember six hours of somebody talking to you I just don't think that that's I just find that wild. I didn't know it would last that long. So anyway, um, he, Lyons, he told the jury, like, he's like, you know, I'm aware that you guys are facing a, quote, unhappy and distressing uh, task due to the nature of the murders, the murders and the ages of the defendants and the ages of the victims, you know. So, <clears throat> you know, he told them, like, I know this it's difficult because of this and whatever and so anyway um he then outlined like his intention of he basically wanted to compare both murders um to say they were both murdered by the same person so he basically like outlined what matched like what surrounding circumstances both deaths deaths had together and like all the evidence and stuff <clears throat> and um you know he did say like i'm aware that there's an age difference between the girls like i know mary is younger but he's this is what he said it's interesting he said that he believed that mary was the more dominant of the two girls and he said that um when both girls he said like they they acted in unison basically and so because of this they were equally culpable so um killing both of these so he said like the reason they did this was quote solely for the pleasure and excitement of murder this is all like the prosecutor's interpretation right and he also put in he added quote both girls well knew what they did was wrong and what the results would be so on the fifth day of trial, Norma testified in her own defense and she denied any culpability in the actual murder of the child, but she did admit under cross-examination to having known um, Mary's uh, penchant uh, for violence and her history of attacking children and that apparently the two of them had actually uh, like discussed attacking and killing small children of both genders. Um, so questioned by the prosecutor as to whether Mary had demonstrated to her how children could be killed, Norma nodded. So then she conceded that um, as Mary began the attack and like began strangling Hal, that she, Norma, had failed to alert. Like, I guess there was a group of boys playing in, in, in the nearby vicinity. And she's like, yeah, you know, I, she, this is what she said, quote, I did not know what was going to happen in the first place. Um, she had stopped hurting him for a bit when the boys were near the concrete blocks. Um, basically saying, like, if you're so innocent, why didn't you stop these boys? Like, you had a chance to stop this crime, basically, is what he was trying to say. Um, so then they asked her, like, what was your role in this murder? And she said that she had, quote, never touched, end quote, the child. Um, so then at the conclusion of Norma's testimony, um, on that like that was the that you know that was the end of her testimony on December twelfth. So after her goes Mary and Mary, she testified in her, her own defense as well. 
um her testimony most her testimony lasted for almost four hours uh it, and it con concluded on december 13th and um she apparently at one occasion started crying on a policewoman's arms i don't know um she denied her she denied norma's like accusations and she's she said that um this is Mary talking. She said that she had never seen the body of Martin Brown at St. Margaret's Road, um, that she herself had never charmed the child, and that she and Norma had later asked the boy's mother to view his body as the two were, quote, daring each other and one of us did not want to be a chicken. Um, so Mary also said that she had divulged in other, others um, the knowledge of Martin's death of Martin's death, um, she, so Mary said that basically, like, Norma, this is quote, get Norma put straight away, so, like, um, she had, like, this info that could get Mary put straight to jail, that's what she was claiming, so when Mary was questioned about who killed Ryan, Mary claimed that it was actually Norma, and that he had been the individual no that she was the individual who had strangled child herself and that mary quote was just standing and looking i couldn't move i was it was as if someone had glued me it was as if some glue was pulling me down so then mary alleged that norma had encouraged brian to lie down um if he wanted some sweets and then he's like so she says quote you've got to lie down for the lady to come with the sweets so that's how I guess they got control of him, like promising him candy. And the poor thing, he's like three years old, so of course he's gonna say yes. Like you know, again, it just kind of shows that she is mature for her age, or just mature in general. Um, and she definitely knew what she was doing, you know. Um. So anyway, so then she says that Norma began strangling him with her bare hands. Um. Well, okay. Oh, she said, no, I'm sorry. She said she did it because she was trying to prevent an, like, an attack. So then she says, Mary, that the level of force Norma had exhibited because, quote, her fingertips and nails were going white. Oh, so yeah. So she was like, oh, I was able to tell how hard she was doing it because her fingertips and nails were white. Um, so she was saying, like, that's how hard she had a grip on him. That's, that's her interpretation, right? Um, so she said that she had not called the police because, um, she had this fear, uh, of Norma's mother's testimony, apparently. So Norma was, wait, what? I don't know what I wrote here, and I'm going to skip it because it makes no sense. Um, so apparently, Betty, Mary's mom, and her husband had discovered Mary attempted to strangle... Oh my god. Oh my gosh, hold on. Alright, sorry I keep having to pause. So, uh, so basically, Mary said, like, yeah, you know, I didn't call the authorities because she was like, well, I was in fear, and I don't know, I had a misguided sense of loyalty to Norma. So then we have Norma's mother's testimony. 
Ah, uh, no, it, it all makes sense. Okay, so Norma's mother is Catherine. So Catherine testified that several months prior to the murder, um, she and her husband, the murder of Brian, she and her husband had discovered Mary attempted to strangle Mary's young younger sister named Susan. Um, apparently, Mary only released her grip on Susan's throat uh, after her husband had punched Mary in the shoulder. A child psychiatrist named Ian Frazier then testified that Norma's mental age was eight years old and ten months, and that although her, although her capability of knowing right from wrong was limited, she was capable of appreciating the criminality of the act she had she was accused of committing. So, um, as I said, like, I just want to say that psychiatry has come a long way since then, and I'd just like to tell you that, remind you that, so that you could take it with a grain of salt, I'm not saying that they're right, not saying that they're wrong, or whatever, but it's like, it's just come a long way where you, I just can't believe everything that a psychiatrist says, you know, from like the 60s or whatever, but I do think they're onto something, you know, but it's like, oh, she was eight years and ten months old in, in her mind, like, I don't know how he determined that, that's all, that's all I'm saying, um, so, what's his name on december 13th norma's defense counselor counsel uh smith delivered his closing argument to the jury what is up with these freaking dogs um so smith emphasized that yeah like both girls were on trial together but really there was no evidence that existed uh against norma and basically the only evidence that was against Norma was Mary's accusations against her so he's basically saying like there is no proof or evidence that my client did anything wrong I'm trying to separate her from um Mary from the crime so he also told the jurors to quote suppress feelings of outrage and malice and display any idea that quote both little girls pay for their actions of one of them so uh Harvey Robson, he delivered his closing argument on behalf of Mary, and Robson basically said that Mary had come from this broken background, he, she had a dysfunctional family, and because of all of that, she had a blurred fantasy between fantasy. <laughs> she, she had like this um, blurred b reality. Like she had like this blurred Oh my gosh, I had the words and I lost them. But, you know, like, there's a blur between fantasy and reality in her mind, basically. Um, so, he also referenced the testimony of Dr. David Westbury. And he um, he had actually testified on behalf of the de defense. And he said, apparently, he had interviewed Mary several times before the trial. And he had formed a, quote, definitive view. The child suffered from a serious personality disorder uh, which was classified as a, again, like, I don't want to say this word, but as a retarded development of her mind. So the R word, I just, it's ugly. I don't, I don't want to use that word. It's not right. But that's what he, I guess, like, officially diagnosed her as or whatever. Um, so he said, like, this was caused by both genetic and environmental factors. So, remember I said nature versus nurture? Like, I think this is part of that whole idea. And he's basically saying it was a little bit of both. She kind of had this mix. Whoa. Like, this perfect mix almost to make 
her who she was or what she did um uh so so yeah so this this is remember on the defensive side so Westbury he said that because of all of this like background she has that it impaired Mary's actual responsibility for her acts so like this is why I say don't just take this at face value like I do think she had a personality disorder and I do think it was caused by genetic and environmental factors like you can't deny all the shit she went through obviously that has to play I mean it has to play some sort of role right in the situation um but this whole like retarded you know like re development of the mind it's like it's just like offensive and it's just like what does that even mean like it's just like it's just frankly like offensive and like incorrect i guess but you know, question me too, because, like, I don't know anything. I'm not a professional. Like, you know, I'm just saying my thoughts here and based on the little I do know, right? Um, so referencing those notes that the girls had left in the nursery, um, Robson stated that the notes proved the crimes were a, quote, childish fantasy. And, like, um, in, he said in Mary's case, like, she did that basically to attract attention to herself. In his closing arm argument, uh, Lyons described the case as a macabre and grotesque one um he's a prosecutor so he said like mary's clearly the more domineering of the two um and that mary yielded this quote very compelling influence reminiscent of the fictional svengali over norma um, he said she was, quote, of subnormal intelligence, stating, quote, I forecast to you that you, I forecast to you that the younger girl, although two years and two months younger than the other, was nevertheless the cleverer and more dominating personality. Oh, sorry. Okay, um... Hold on a second. Technical difficulties. Sorry. Um, okay, I lost my place. Um, so, yeah, and he also just, like, outlined all the lies that Mary had told the police and all the lies, you know, she had told the court. And he also was like, like, yo, look at her lack of remorse. And she was like cunning and whatever, right? So he pointed all of that out. And the, basically, the trial lasted 19 days. And on December 17th, the jury retired to consider the verdict. And they only deliberated for three hours and 25 minutes, which I don't think is that long. You know, I think it makes sense. Um, before reaching their verdicts, Mary was. Uh, well, okay. So Mary was cleared of murder but convicted of the manslaughter of both boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Norma Bell was acquitted of all charges. So upon hearing the jury's verdict, Norma clapped her hands in excitement. Um, again, like, remember, like, she shows emotion easily, they said. So it's just very childish. She does seem very childish, even though she's, like, 13 or whatever. Um, and then Mary's response was just she just burst into tears. And then her mother was crying and her grandmother was crying. 
So then um, Judge Cusack, like when he was passing the sentence, he said that Bell was a, quote, dangerous individual. And she she posed a, quote, very grave risk to other children. Um, and she said that, uh, he said that, quote, steps must be taken to protect the public from her. So just like super quick, it's like, like there's so many laws and it's so hard i know it's so hard like it's not so black and white it's very difficult there's so many nuances that go on and everything but it's like crazy that the the judge is saying like she's dangerous she's a risk to other children like we must protect the public from her and everything but basically like you know she's like kind of like gonna be free to go you know um well like eventually so anyway so she was sentenced to be detained at her majesty's pleasure effectively an indefinite sentence of imprisonment um she was basically initially detained in a durham remand home and then she was transferred to a second home in south norwood and then she was transferred to red bank which was like the secure unit and um so this was basically a young offenders institution in Newton Le- Luton Lee Willows Maryside in uh, early 1969 and apparently she was the only female among approximately 24 inmates so later Mary claimed that she had been sexually abused by a member of the staff and several inmates um, she claimed that the sexual abuse began when she was 13 in November 1973 she was 16 and she was transferred to a secure wing of HM prison style in Cheshire and apparently, reportedly, Bell resented her transfer to this facility. And uh, while she was incarcerated here, she unsuccessfully applied for parole. Um, on June 1976, Bell was transferred to Moore Court Open Prison, where she, there she took a secretarial course. So I guess here she started to do a little bit more, right? So she, 15 months later, in September 1977, Bell again began to make uh, national headlines when she... And another, I don't know if anybody, sorry, really quick, that just reminded me. If anybody listens to, it's a, it's a really fun podcast. I love, I think a lot of people who like true crime like documentaries. I'm just saying, probably, maybe. Um, so there's this podcast called, um, oh my gosh, what is it called? Uh, it is uh, with Tig and Cheryl. Oh my gosh, what is this called? Hold on one second. Let me look for it. It's called, uh, oh, Tig and Cheryl, true story. <laughs> so, they are two comedians. They, oh my gosh, it's Cheryl Hines and Tig Notaro, and they are hilarious. And they don't even really talk about the documentaries, um, but it's just fun. Like if because I watch so many that I'll like listen to them, and I already had watched it, and then I'll hear their take, and it's funny. And they go off course, but anyway, they always say national headlines on one of the first episodes. Somehow, that was like, and then you like somehow they made it like national headlines means you're having sex. So it just. She made national headlines. It's just funny. It reminded me of that. And I just think you should check out that podcast because it's funny. So anyway, so she made national headlines when she and this other inmate, Annette Priest, briefly escaped. They escaped this open prison. So they both escaped and spent several days in the company of two young men in Blackpool. Um, and they apparently were like sleeping um, in like various local hotels. And they were visiting like amusement play- parks or whatever. And Belle like... She was using the alias Mary Robinson, um, and then they, like, left the boys, 
apparently. And then she was then later found, uh, she was arrested at the Derbyshire home of one of the men, Clive Shirtcliffe, on September 13th. Um, so at this point, she had dyed her hair blonde because she was trying to, like, disguise her identity. So she was returned to custody that evening. And then, um, Annette Priest was arrested in Leeds a few days later. So she was actually able to evade a little bit longer. So Mary's penalty for absconding was the loss of prison privileges for 28 days. That doesn't seem like, again, like, much consequences. Like, oh, loss of prison privileges for 28 days? Like, I don't know. So in June 1979, the Home Office announced their decision to transfer Mary Bell to HM Prison Ascom Grange. So this was an open category prison in the village of Ascom Richard in efforts to prepare her for her eventual release into society. Hear that. Which was planned for the following year. Her release into society. (laughs) So beginning November 1979, she started working as a secretary and then she was a waitress at a cafe in York Minister under like supervision guidelines um, and whatever. Again, in preparation for her release, she was released from that prison in May 1980 at the age of 23. So she served 11 and a half years in custody. So she was granted anonymity uh, and she got a new name. So this allowed her to start a new life elsewhere um, in the country, you know, under an assumed identity. And so upon her release, a spokesperson is quoted saying, quote, Belle wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and to be left alone. Uh... So four years after her release from custody on May 25th, 1984, Belle gave birth to a daughter. Uh, this would be her only daughter, but I just want to say, like, a few things. Like, first of all, again, this whole name thing, like, is it right that she gets to go and, like, oh, she wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life? Like, Brian didn't get the chance to live a normal life. He didn't get the chance to live. Or Martin, like, I just find that, like, weird. Like, I don't, I don't know. It just doesn't seem right that they get to have this new name and just change identities and act like nothing happened like yeah she served her time but like this is a consequence of what you did like you do have to live with that stink on you because like you did that don't you think i mean i don't know so anyway another thing's like oh she has having kids now like i just find that so weird like so many killers go like have families either like after or like while they're killing like that that this kind of reminds me a little bit of um carla homolka a little bit but then also it's like uh, there's so many men that just were out there living their lives having families like whatever like nothing happened i just find that to be so odd like it's such a weird dichotomy i don't know so anyway her daughter knew nothing about her mother's past like she didn't know her mother was a murderer or anything like that but in 1998 reporters discovered where they were living Uh, which was in this resort town on the Sussex coast. And they had apparently been living there for about 18 months. So once they discovered, um, you know, once they discovered them, the media, like, went crazy with it. So obviously this forced Mary and her 14-year-old daughter to have to leave their home because people were outraged, obviously. So they had to be driven to a safe house by undercover officers. It's almost like now they're, like, in witness protection program. That's where I'm, like, messed up. I know the daughter isn't at fault, you know, but it's, like, it's it's so complicated because... You know, it's so complicated, but it just feels wrong. So both mother and daughter later relocated to another part of the United Kingdom. Mary was allegedly returned. Oh, she apparently returned to Tinnaside on several occasions in the years following her release. 
and apparently she had actually lived at the location for some time. So the right to anonymity granted to her daughter following her birth was originally only extended until she reached the age of 18. However, on May 21st, 2003, Mary won a high court battle to battle her own anonymity and that of her daughter uh, extended for life. So now for life, they get to have this uh, anonymity. So this was approved by Dame Elizabeth Butler Sloss. And so then that later was updated to include um, Mary's granddaughter. This was in January 2009. They named the, they referred to her, I guess, the granddaughter as Z. Um, and so basically this order prohibits any, like, um, it, it, it prohibits anybody from, like, digging into the identity of Mary, her daughter, and the granddaughter Z. So, like, this is what I'm talking about. Like, I don't know, this reminds me of James, the case I did about James Bolger, um, which if you go back on episode 5, it's on my feed. Um, really sad story as well. Child, two years old. Um, and again, these little prepubescent boys were the murderers, John Venables and Robert Thompson. They were also granted anonymity. If you guys want to, like, hear that story, it's episode 5 on my feed, just so you know, if you want to listen to it, or you can go find it somewhere else, whatever. But, like, they were both also granted anonymity. They were also a part of, like, this program growing up, and then once they turned, like, 21 or something, they were released. I can't remember the exact age. They were released into society, and they got anonymity, and then, um, was it John? I can't remember which of the two, like, reoffended, and he went through all this stuff, and there was lots of fighting like james's dad fought the court and they were like his identity needs to stay public he's a like a not a menace to society but like a danger to society and um you know he he wanted his name out there and you know they kept fighting for that and so i just i just think it's something that we should discuss like i get like i get both sides like is it fair that the child's murderers get to live their life after what they've done and just be like normal like nothing happened right or is it fair for them to be harassed for the rest of their life because they will be harassed like people are going to be mean and whatever and chase them out of town or whatever but then it's like isn't that a consequence of their actions like isn't that something that maybe you should consider it's like not just oh i'm gonna go to jail but also like what would happen after or you know what i mean like there's consequences to actions so but then it's like okay she has a daughter who has nothing to do with anything so is it fair that she now has to suffer this harassment like obviously not so it's it's not that easy but i just think it's like an interesting discussion and i just think it's something that um it's a discussion that we should have i think that is all um it's an inter- it's an interesting discussion basically. Um in 1998, uh Mary Col- Col- Cal- oh my god, collaborated with Arthur Jitta Cerny to provide an account of her life uh before and after her crimes. So this book uh was called Cries Unheard: The Story of Mary Bell. So within this book, this is when Mary like details all the abuse she suffered as a child at the hands of her sex worker mother and she's like Mary says like she was a dominatrix um, and that, you know, she, in, in the book, she alleges, like, several of her mother's clients were abusing her and things like that. And so, um, in the book, they also interviewed other relatives, friends, um, and professionals who knew her before, during, and after her imprisonment. Um, Mary's current whereabouts are unknown, and they uh, remain protected, again, remember, by that 2003 high court order. So, according to that author, um... Mary does not claim that she was wrongly convicted. She does admit to the abuse she suffered as a child. And she does say, like, 
that does not excuse my crimes. So it seems like she's taking responsibility um, to an extent. She's, she, you know, she's never saying, like, oh, I didn't do it or anything. Like, and it, she's, she's not saying, like, she's not, ex- you know, she's not excusing it. So that's, I think, in a way, um, nice. Because, you know, normally they are, like, these people try to uh, justify their actions. And it doesn't seem like she's doing that. So that's interesting. I hope that means she grew as a person. I hope that means that she's not the same i guess as she was a child hopefully she got help you know i don't know i don't know we don't know where she is right now but um yeah i don't know that's the story of mary bell i don't know if she's technically a serial killer like i said but i would categorize her as one um i think truly like at that moment in time if she hadn't been caught she would have kept going and i don't know i just shudder to think like what if what if she got away with it like what would she have become you know what i mean like there's no i just feel like she would have just kept going um to me it seems a little frenzied and and like i don't know how to explain it to you it seems almost like 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 unhinged like i don't know how to explain it to you but you know imagine she had gotten away with it i just think it would have been bad and then and then as far as norma like like what do you guys think do you think norma was involved do you think that she you know did anything do you think she was encouraging it like what do you think her involvement was she was totally acquitted was that fair is that fair um what are your thoughts was i mean clearly she was troubled and she went along with it like that's admitted and you know i just think i don't know what she did obviously we don't know but i think she aided more than she was willing to admit like i bet you she helped to get the boy the boys to come with them like you know i'm sure she was helping in those manners i don't think she stood there and physically held him down or something like that maybe she did i don't know i don't think so but i still think she's probably um culpable of some i don't think she should have been totally acquitted is what i'm trying to say but what do you guys think i don't know um i know that i do concede like yeah maybe mary probably convinced her i don't know i just like what what are your guys' thoughts i would like to i would love to know uh, so thank you guys for listening. By the way, I do have a few videos on YouTube if you'd like to check those out. They're very short, not like well done or whatever, but none of my stuff is, I guess. Um, So it's called Crime Castle Pod, so you're free to watch those if you want or like leave a comment or whatever. Be nice to me, please. Um, You can also reach out to me at crimecastlepod at gmail.com if you have anything to say. And I'm at Twitter, the same thing, at crimecastlepod. That's about it. Thank you for listening. Sorry it was so long. Bye.